Regenerative insect management takes a mindset shift. There's no silver bullets for it, but there's things that you can do to set yourself up for less pest pressure. I'll be covering this in this upcoming episode. Hi, my name is Scott Gillespie of Plants Dig Soil, the name of the podcast and the consulting company. We're an independent agronomy company. We do not sell products. We provide advice only. We focus on realistic regen ag, which has to be proven and profitable. We work in person or remote or a combination of the two. Our pricing is set to be affordable to anyone from a Q&A package to full farm planning. There's no long-term commitments. You can retain our services, do it yourself, or hire others. Of course, we always love to work with people over the long term. So let's start out with one of the biggest challenges of insect management when you're looking at it from a regenerative mindset. When you have migratory insects, it's going to be a very hard thing to be able to control them or to have measures in place to control them in your farm. Now having shelter belts or diverse prairie strips, which are kind of like a... a um, a simulated prairie or trying to put things back into prairie around a field may help. I know in organic systems there are some growers that have many strips of crops through a field and they have um, many uh, and either some strips of perennials or just strips of crops so that the insects can never quite find all of the field at once. So that is a strategy, but it may be a little tougher to implement on a farm without major changes in it. And I've talked about this before. There is work that shows you need about 30% of land in non-agricultural land to have an impact on, on having predators available to take care of the pests. And this is unworkable for most situations. So something kind of interesting in pivot irrigation, when we when we irrigate a, a quarter section, which is 160 acres, we only get about 130 to 135 of that. So we're actually fairly close because all of the corners have um, are usually not not farmed, at least in my area, because of how dry it is. And so we actually might have an impact here. Now, this this is um, this strategy of trying to get take care of migratory insects. It there might be impacts of having natural areas around. I can give an anecdotal story. There were um, and they they show up occasionally in years. Are painted lady butterflies that show up. And they can be a pest problem in some crops. I noticed them getting uh, high populations in a soybean crop one year. And then all of a sudden they were gone. And I noticed a flock of birds that was just kept flying around the soybean field. And I kind of think that's what got them. But it's hard to say because they just kind of... the the. Uh, pest pressure disappeared and I never saw them after that. Um, now grasshoppers, we've been fortunate. We haven't had very large outbreaks recently, though last year there was, there were outbreak spots. And when something like this comes in, they 
um, the force and the magnitude of their of their army of grasshoppers can just overwhelm any natural defenses. So there there are, are different funguses. There's different natural predators. There's different things that can take care of these grasshoppers. Um, but by the time they ramp up, your crop is probably already lost. So um, you can have a regenerative mindset when you're looking at these things, but sometimes you do have to resort to the chemicals to control them. So let's shift to the resident insects. These are the ones that do build up in your soil um, or in the area around your field. Now, cover crops may help these. I have seen some recent work, which is very promising, that's showing that buckwheat at about 25% in a mix is enough to kill wireworms. And for some reason, they love to eat it, and then they die. Um, the mustard can have an effect on them too. So there's potential that a buckwheat mustard cover crop might have some effects on wireworm in decreasing them. Now the problem is it's unknown as to whether you need to have a full season cover crop or whether just a fall cover crop that is available for them when they come up to eat in the fall, whether that will be enough to control them but again, um, there is some anecdotal evidence, or I guess some observed evidence in the East Coast, where as farmers have implemented these more, they are finding less problems with the wireworms. Now this sounds promising, but we need to always be careful of not just transferring it to a new area because Wireworms are many different species. We call them we call them wireworms, but when you get down into identifying them, there are dozens of species. They're spread across different geographies. Some are more prevalent in certain areas. So this might be helping them in the East Coast in the potato production, the particular wireworms that they are dealing with, but it may not work in the prairies. So we need research. We need to learn what is actually going on. Now, again, um, this is this is uh, maybe not anecdotal, but this is actually scientific study. This is it's only one study, or it's only um, it's two studies. But what's interesting is is that for a particular pest, um, and I've mentioned this before in the podcast, there was work in the East Coast where they found that a particular cover crop increased the pest. And whereas that had been a promising new control because in Europe it had been found to decrease the pest. So obviously something is going on there, whether we have a different pest or a different life cycle or something that looks similar, or it's just not working. There's something subtle in the difference of the... Um, the climate that is causing um, that is causing something different to be working here. So one more story on why I am cautious on cover crops being a cure for pests, because sometimes it's 
pitched as getting, okay, well, my, my favorite phrase that I hear, getting the biology working for you. And if you just increase the biology then, or the things that are working in your soil, then you'll have less pests. Um, a study that was done for an organic system, and it was actually done in very close to my area in an irrigated organic farm using a full season. Um, okay, well, there were many different options of, of uh, full season cover crops, including a control, which was basically a full season weedy period um, where they used a diverse cocktail mix and where they had winter crops that that overwintered or that were um, um, that provided green cover through the fall and into the following spring that was where they had the most wireworm damage um, and there was also um, unknown as to exactly whether it was wireworm or nematodes, but there was more forking on the carrots or more damage to the carrots. So just because you have uh, a longer cover crop or putting a cover crop in <clears throat> does not necessarily mean you're going to lower your insect pests. And this is why I am waiting to get more evidence with um, this buckwheat and mustard because it does seem promising that these are the two species, um, and potentially sorghum sugudian grass is another one, that are going to be the ones that will actually decrease pest pressure. But until we know, until we know the effects, um, I don't want to use them without at least understanding the risks that they might decrease pests or they might increase pests. Now I want to talk about the bait and switch option. So trap crops are something that are well studied and well known in vegetable production, where you put something that is very enticing to the, the potential pest and that they'll go to that over um, or instead of your um, commercial crop. Now, something that has never been commercialized that I came across years ago is that there was a tomato that they accidentally found was extremely palatable to Colorado potato beetles, so much so that you put it out and they'll go to that. They won't touch the tomatoes around them or potatoes. Um, I'm not sure why it hasn't taken off, but it's uh, the the germplasm is sitting there available for anybody that wants to. It's called, um, they've actually named it, it's called bug bait. Um, so the tomato is not very good for commercial production, but it's excellent for attracting the Colorado potato beetle. Um, and so there is, there are options that can work in high value vegetable production or in home gardens where you can put out something, attract the pests and, and kill them or just give them something to eat that they'll eat and they'll move on. They won't touch your crop. Now there's some growing evidence that intercropping cash crops could help if the pest is, is um, it's very similar to a trap crop. If the pest is um, prefers one over the other, it may leave the more vulnerable one alone. Um, and where I saw this was there's potential that a cereal pulse intercrop 
they'll, the wireworms will go after the pulse rather than the cereal. So of course you still have problems with them being in your pulse crop, but maybe if they can get through it better than a cereal crop, then you have a more resilient system. Now where it might work better is, and I have talked about this in the past, is intercropping cover crops. So instead of trying to put out two cash crops that you're going to have to try to grow and harvest and separate later, put out the cash crop and put a cover crop in that will do the same function. And then you don't have to worry about trying to harvest too. So as an example, um, I did see that there was at least some potential in putting peas between potato hills and the peas would attract the wireworms and leave the potatoes alone. So there is potential, but of course it does take machinery changes. It takes management changes in how you, how you manage these crops. Um, and there's the extra cost of putting something else out there. So again, like a lot of things, I think there's a lot of great ideas. There's a lot of things that could be done, but the research is just getting going. Now, I'm not sure exactly how where this fits, but I'm going to put it in here anyway. I just um, read about this recently. There is a fungus that um, is fairly deadly to wireworms, and so if you can attract them to it, and then they uh, they get infected, then it can be very devastating to them. So there's been some work on using putting the fungus on rice and putting that out with your crop, because uh, at least in Western Canada, the rice is not going to do very well. Now, of course, there has been some research on it here. Um, but if you put something out that's going to grow and eventually die or get killed, um, or maybe even by the wireworm, um, but it's not your is not your crop, your cash crop, and then they get infected, um, it will kill them. Now, this is more of a long-term study because, or a long-term strategy, because it's gonna take, it would take years and years of doing this to, to wear down your wireworm population because wireworms have a very long cycle. So it's a potential, it's something out there, but it's not commercially available yet. Which brings me to my final section in this episode, cultural controls. Really the best thing you can be doing is following proper crop rotations. I know this is very tough when economics dictate what you can grow or even local markets and what you can actually ship dictates what you can grow. But I think this is where we can get creative when it only works to grow canola and wheat or canola and some other cereal. Um, this is where I think we can look at some of these cover crop options in between them to help break up the cycle a little bit more. And of course, it's going to be tough to do in a prairie situation and there's going to be more cost. But if this cost is, is less than what the damage is or what um, your long-term impacts are, I think it can work. Something interesting is um, just not spraying when just just because or for insurance, just because you will sleep better. Um, fascinating study where they 
in canola, they just happen to find a parasitoid of um, wheat midge. So it it was just there. Um, it turns out that because they it was in wheat stubble, um, the parasitoid comes up, emerges in a canola field, which you would think would be a bad thing for it, but it actually it needs just a little bit of um, nectar to uh, to make its flight to look for the wheat fields. And so if it can get that little drink of nectar from the canola flowers and then move on, then it can go fight your uh, pests in the wheat field or in a neighboring wheat field. But if you spray and you kill them, then you're going to end up having to spray again to kill the ones, to kill the pest in your um, in your wheat crop. So um, another one is avoiding tillage. This is a soil health principle and I and I understand and I advocate for tillage used in the proper way. Um, so you still follow what you need the, the best use for your tillage, but the more tillage there is, the more conducive the soil is for a lot of these insects to be able to get in and lay their eggs. Um, some people would say, well, the tillage is gonna gonna hurt them, but it's fairly well shown that these insect eggs are so tiny and insects are so tiny at the beginning, the tillage doesn't really impact them. This also helps to build a population of generalists. Um, there's studies ongoing right now trying to quantify what is called the field heroes. And there's actually a website called that, Field Heroes. And um, trying to figure out which ones are doing the most work and how we can we can conserve them. So I think this is where lowering our chemical use or only using it when it's really, really needed, lowering our tillage and just using it as a tool, not just because we want to, um, and getting in cr proper crop rotations, I think is going to really make an impact on this. But again, as a summary, there's no silver bullet. There's no one thing. And when you see people that advocate for that or are trying to show that or trying to say that you do this one thing and you'll won't have insect pests, um, I'm I'm not so sure of that. Um, but I'm always open to hear hear your questions and comments. So thank you for listening to another episode and I will talk to you again next time.